Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done a little over 410 of them now, and if you like this one and you haven't heard other ones and would like to, there's a past interviews menu on batgap.com where you can see all the previous ones organized in various ways. This um, whole program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. My wife and I spend most of our time throughout the week working on it in one way or another. Um, so if you would like to support it, if you appreciate it, uh, there's a donate button on every page of the site. My guest today is Hans Laurentius. Hans is in the Netherlands. And uh, first of all, welcome Hans. Good to have you. Thanks. Bye. Uh, I'll read little bits of your bio and then I'll kind of ask you questions as I'm reading the bio because I, I have okay. questions on some of these things. So um, you were trained in the 90s as a teacher in spiritual therapy. What is spiritual therapy and who trained you? Uh, okay. Uh, well, I was trained by, among others, uh, Stammerding and spiritual therapy has to do with chakras and energies and that kind of stuff. So you would work with people and then help them to clear their chakras or whatever? Uh, well, that was the intention. So yeah. for, for a very brief moment, I thought I would be a spiritual therapist and then something happened. So okay. uh, it didn't work out that way. That's okay. Things never do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then the search stopped, you say, mm. among other things, mainly through the confrontation with the Sagadatta's I am that and Ramana Maharshi's glare. Yeah. Um, is that the something that happened? Well, we always like to have a cause and effect thing. Yeah. So if we believe in that story, uh, they had to do with it. Okay. So you just basically focused on I am that and maybe some Ramana Harshi books and stuff and... The picture of Ramana. Uh, ah, just staring, I, just I looking was, at the picture. Yeah, I was opening the book one day, I was reading Nishagadana and I was opening the book I had on the shelf a few years. Mm -hmm but never read it, and, well, something happened, a sort of push. And then I could, yeah, and then looking at the picture, and, uh, well. Yeah. I've interviewed quite a few people who've had strange experiences with Ramana Maharshi, and in some cases, before they ever even heard of him or saw a picture of him, they would have, they would see him, some vision would come or something, and then later on they would see a book on a shelf in a bookstore, uh -huh. and now, well, that was the guy I saw, you know? So, yeah. mm -hmm. he's up to some tricks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you, you mentioned the spontaneous recognition of awareness, consciousness as reality. So that, again, you know, with apologies for the cause and effect thing, but that uh, there was some such recognition as a result of this focus, possibly. Uh, yeah, maybe, but also uh, in, in the trainings uh, for the spiritual therapy, uh, I, I had a lot of energetic experiences. And one of them was, was something of a, a turnaround that I wasn't in the world, but the world was in me. So the experience was something like I'm walking inside of myself. Mm. I am this body-mind, but also everything else. And it just happened. Yeah. I wasn't looking for it or anything, but these, these things occurred. Did that kind of stuff happen to you even when you were young, like a, in childhood or mainly later as you started this? No. No? Well, the first I remember was uh, when I was in a fight. 
and some kids were trying to kick the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I had the experience, well, you can kick all you want, you cannot touch me. Interesting. You can only kick the body, not me. Huh. That, that was a weird thing. And another thing was I was running across the street, I think I was 14 or 16, I don't know exactly. But I fell in front of a car and I thought, well, that's it. Mm. And I only found it interesting. Oh, there was no fear or anything, just interesting looking at the grill moving towards me. And then afterwards, of course, the ego jumped up again and I was scared and shaky and, and all. But, but I didn't have anything to do with, with those uh, experiences until uh, in my 20s that I recognized, oh, something happened there. Yeah. The reason I asked that and the reason I find that interesting is that that does come up quite a bit with people who have had some sort of spiritual awakening later on is they, they often have had stuff when they were a kid and then later on it resurfaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if it's somebody who has a spiritual awakening without having done a lot of practice or anything. It's, it seems mm -hmm. to be more, more common that they, they have a proclivity for such things, you know? Yeah. yeah. I often talk about this stuff in, in terms of a virus. Some people have the virus and others don't. And you cannot meditate yourself into a virus. <laughs> you know, it, it, it will seek you out or not. Mm. Yeah, we'll probably talk more about this. I, I think that, well, to take the virus metaphor, I, I think that uh, for some people, a fair amount of meditation can make you susceptible to the virus. And, and more likely to catch it, maybe. But, you know, I get your point. <laughs> in Zen sayings, there's a, saying, yeah. there's a saying that, you know, enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. Yeah, 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 well, there are two sides on that coin, because what I observe is that a lot of people who are uh, in the form of practice, mm -hmm. uh, the practice becomes a shield more than an, a catalyst yeah, I think that can be. I, I think it's hard to make universal rules about anything. There's always sure. ex exceptions through every generality, but I've seen that too. You know, it becomes very habitual and rigid almost. Yes, yes, and and thereby strengthening the ego, who always believes he can move from A to B, while in my opinion there is only A, mm -hmm. and we should investigate A and not try to move to a better future or a better me or whatever. Yeah. And a lot of the spiritual practice is based on the assumption I am here and I got to be there. But there is no there. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox. We might as well get into this right now. Um, and feel obviously feel free to disagree with anything I say. Um, yeah, sure. you too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's kind of a paradox because, sure, it's it's here and many people say that when enlightenment dawns they realize this has always been this way i've always this has always been the, the nature the case you know I, somehow it just wasn't recognized mm -hmm. before on the other hand you can't say to a room full of people you know it's just this is the way it is and expect 100 100 of them to wake up there's there's going to be some I'm kind of sure. yeah um so for those people in a sense even though it's right here it is kind of in the future because maybe they will wake up eventually when there's enough clarity or something. Yeah, or they have a car accident or whatever. For, yeah, for, somebody, you never know. Somebody tries to beat them up. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. True.
Okay, we'll get back into that more, I'm sure. After that awakening, the I am consciousness was recognized to be the first identification. Is it possible yeah. to explain what that was like and how your life was lived after that? <laughs> As opposed to how it had been before? Yeah, well, the assumption here is that something changed on the body-mind level or in my life, but I don't think so much changed or I don't even think that is relevant. Mm -hmm. So, in the course of time, if we, if we uh, accept time, things change, but it might also be that I'm 52 now and not 25 and there's a different phase or life energy or whatever. So it's very hard for me to say this, this is because of that and that is because of this. So I, I don't really know. Well, that's a fair enough answer. And, um, and I, I like that about you actually, that you'll write an article, let's say, I've read all the articles, all the English written articles on your website and mm -hmm. you know, you'll state an opinion about something and then you'll say, but I don't know, you know I, yeah. might, I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. sure. It's a healthy attitude. That's an interesting question in and of itself. In fact, there was one of the articles on your, web, on your website that was about morality, and that's one of the ones in which you particularly emphasize that you may, know, may not know. And there's a whole discussion about you know, whether awakening changes behavior and uh, mm -hmm. you know, whether one can be an enlightened scoundrel, so to speak, um, or whether you know, one is going to become more compassionate or saintly or something like that as a result of the impact mm -hmm. of, of realization. Do you have any opinions about that? Well, I think any, anything goes in this universe. Mm -hmm. So some people may soften up or uh, be more pleasant. Mm -hmm. uh, other ones may not. I don't think, and no, let's put it differently. The thing I liked about working with energy as well as working with Advaita is that there is a basic rule uh, of behavior. You know, it's, it's not a code like most religions or philosophies. You should act like this or that, right. which is very strange. Freedom and, and rules of conduct, I, I think that is quite insane. Yeah. Well, what I do notice is, is people will be real, not, not necessarily pleasant. And of course, uh, you, you use that word compassion. For, for me, compassion is a very strange word mm -hmm. because compassion is only possible when there are two. Mm. But the experience is there is no two. So uh, I always say to people, the ocean, ocean doesn't have compassion with its waves. It is the waves. Compassion is, is a very strange concept to me. Yeah, it would be strange to say the ocean has compassion. Uh, like it would be strange to say you have compassion for your finger, you know. You wouldn't be inclined to cut your finger intentionally, but right. you, you wouldn't say you're compassionate toward it. Right, exactly. So a lot of these terms like uh, having faith or, or surrender or compassion or acceptance are terms important for somebody who believes he's a separate entity. Yeah, in one of your articles, you speak to something which I would call spontaneous right action. You, you say, to me, the right action results from the total energetical constellation of the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
which and it presents itself it's not a choice or something yeah and it's not something you could totally figure out i mean intellectually you can't no you no, can't fathom no all, all the ramifications of every little thing you say or do yes exactly and, and you cannot look into the future so uh, sometimes people say uh, because I'm, I'm teaching or writing stuff oh that's very good but i say i don't know <laughs> because i cannot oversee all the implications all the variables of what will happen when i say something to somebody so there's no way to know and i'm fine with that yeah. other people especially when you believe you're a separate entity you want to know what what is the effect of your actions and you're responsible and everything and then then you will tramp up yeah that's actually, it's terrifying yeah. i might do it wrong yeah right and wrong it, it doesn't mean anything to me there's actually a verse in the bhagavad-gita which says that action is on the karma or action is unfathomable by human intellect and the yeah. only the only way you can be assured of doing the right thing is to be established in you know what you would call here awareness or consciousness and mm -hmm. the self and then perform action and from then and then the sort of the intelligence of nature will work it out for you yeah and basically it is life happening not Hans or Rick doing anything although we might like to claim it but but that's just basically silly yeah I am happening you are happening we're not somebody going somewhere or doing something mm -hmm. yeah and so the whole thing about behavior and gnarliness and stuff like that I mean you were you were inspired by Nisargadatta and he was a good example I mean he was sort of a you know kind of a rough character in a, in a certain way although, yeah. although very sweet and compassionate he also smoked cigarettes which i believe you still yeah. do yeah yeah because of him of course <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he eventually yeah, stopped yeah, yeah yeah well we all will yeah yeah it's one way or the other <laughs> so look coming back to your bio here since 1998, you've led hundreds of satsangs, retreats, and private sessions. Um, you've published eight books and a booklet, many articles and columns, uh, YouTube satsang videos, one is in English, and, mm -hmm. and seven homemade music CDs because you're a musician. So do you still do all that stuff, satsangs, retreats, private sessions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's you, what I do. Are you pretty well known in Holland? Uh, yeah, I would say this so. This kind of thing? It, it's also a, a small community uh, interested in the, this kind of stuff, and I'm one of the guys. <laughs> right. You're on a big fish in a small pond. Uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's the same. Okay. And you yourself say that you were sometimes judged as being too confrontational or direct, um, or more kindly, as very clear. On the other hand, people credit you for your creativity and patience. And then you say funny, right? Um, yeah. So, what's an example of how you're confrontational? Yeah, well, uh, usually in, in interactions, and especially in private interactions, it seems to be my job to point out things people don't want to hear. Mm. Which they already know, because I believe, and, unless you're insane, you have a pretty good feeling of, of who you are and what you're hiding or you know your games but but you usually 
try to avoid that or get away from it, well, I will see it. I can't help it. And when people walk to, through my door, I can say what I want to say. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that in the street, but I will point things out and, and confront people with what they're hiding or protecting or point out uh, judgments or well, whatever. Yeah. Do you... Sometimes they don't like it. But they come to you voluntarily, so they can always not, not yeah, tell me. Yeah, that. right. <laughs> that, that's why I have, have a quote on, on the site, uh, come here at your own risk. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not sitting there with people to make friends. Uh, they come and we talk about truth mm -hmm. or freedom or whatever. Well, okay, let's play ball then. Is this some this tendency to sort of see the truth in people something you've always had? Is that part of your personality or is that something which seemed to dawn after this awakening or after practice through working as a spiritual teacher? Um, yeah, both, I think, but mainly because I, at a certain point, started to investigate the workings of my own mind. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you figure out the, the basic software of your mind and you open your eyes you see that it's basically the same in anybody with who walks on two feet huh. so you know the tricks and and the belief system and and the the avoidance strategies or you know the cover-ups because i've seen them in me interesting and so this investigation of your own mind, I guess, was just sort of an introspective process. And were you able to kind of, as if, uh, you know, be your own psychiatrist, so to speak, and uh, you could see these things and, and actually kind of resolve them and not, not do it that way anymore? Uh, in, in the beginning, it wasn't really, uh, I think, about resolving, but understanding. Yeah just how it works uh -huh. you know i had been avoiding it by by, by drink and, and smoking pot and whatever mm -hmm. and going to a party and a party and a party and being with friends all the time and at, at a certain moment uh, i realized that i was just running away because mm. i was afraid and, and and felt pretty much fucked up and, and and a little depressed and stuff so I noticed this this running away and avoiding and, and uh, deflecting. And I saw that it didn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, it gave only a temporary relief. So I was looking at it and at a certain point I saw I only try only didn't try one thing, doing nothing and just look. Mm -hmm. So I stopped these uh, run and hide games and confronted with fears and, and beliefs and convictions and just looked at them. What, what were they doing? What is happening here? You know, because therapy and stuff and people were threatening me with psychiatrists and whatever. I thought they will try to fix stuff, mm. but I don't want to fix it. I want to know what it is. So, because there was something, uh, I, I don't want to try to change something that I do not, do not understand. Mm. You know, so, I wanted to know what's what. Yeah. 
That's basically it. So I, I started looking and listening and feeling instead of trying to change me. Mm -hmm. And but but doing that, it seems, did change you. You probably yeah, stopped. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So so because of the looking at it without trying to fix it or avoid it, things changed from within instead of through some model mm -hmm. or, or ego-centered, uh, this is bad and it should be good or whatever. So just bringing awareness to it, really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I didn't know that then because I didn't know these terms. Only when I uh, ran into Krishnamurti and Nisargadatta and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, the, the words came. But th this process was already happening. Mm. Interesting. Another example of something you just kind of picked up on, you know, without an actual teacher or teaching. Yeah. Some, yeah. some old memory of how to operate or something. Now, a lot of people, you know, they drink and they take drugs and they party and do all kinds of other things because they are trying to avoid something and that's uncomfortable. And they're, yes. they're putting their attention in the opposite sure. direction or trying to blur it out with substances. Um, mm -hmm. When you decided to really look at this stuff, was it uncomfortable and you had to just sort of work your way through the discomfort? Yes. Yeah. I was afraid. Mm -hmm. But but what was very clear, I already was afraid. So what's the difference? I saw that. I, I was afraid to feel my fear or my sadness or whatever. But hey, I was already afraid and I didn't like life already. So, so what do you have I to had lose? nothing to lose right. except fear or delusion mm. so that was okay and now I thought or, or felt more something is happening instead of running yeah good so um, there are a number of points here that you sent me almost as part of your bio just some different points that you feel are important I thought I might take those and uh, mm -hmm. we could discuss them. So first one is when spirituality is not alarming, it's not worth mentioning. What do you mean by alarming? What would be an example of spirituality being alarming? Uh, well, when we discover something, uh, usually there's a, sh a shock element to it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, you know. Mm. And what did I see is a lot of people who are busy with spirituality not to be shocked awakening in awakening, but to be soothed or, you know, like smoking pot. Right. So it's not about comfort or nice. It's about self-confrontation and looking at things as they are. Mm -hmm. It's about truth and truth might might hurt or shock you. When, when you are confronted with your lovelessness, that's a shock. You know, so there are always shocking and disturbing uh, elements uh, and we need this friction, I think, to go deeper. A lot of the technique, techniques that I saw and the things that are people doing I believe it, it's helping them to remain in sleep instead of waking them up. It's not like a bucket of water when you're lying, you know, splash and 
it'll snap you out of it. No, it's it's all oh, easy, easy, and mm. do some other whatever, something to make you feel good. What would be some examples of techniques that are just to make you feel good and that that don't really help to wake you up? Uh, almost everything. Really? I'm afraid. All the different spiritual yeah. practices and. Yeah, most of it. Hmm. What I see. Like, for instance, I've I've heard you mention meditation in that context, and and yet, you know, the world's spiritual traditions and so many, you know, respected teachers have all advocated it as an effective tool. Um, so, but you're saying it's just a pacifier, maybe? Are you? Yeah, in most cases, I make a distinction in the satsang last week. There's meditation and meditating. Meditating is working, trying to go from here to there. Meditation is just being with what is. It's effortless. It's just being conscious of consciousness now. You know, but most most techniques are verbs. So it's the ego who likes to work and it has to take time and, and it has uh, the promise of progress. But reality is, mm. it has nothing to do with evolution or progress or development. That's all, all these phrases refer to time and effort. Well, ego loves that. When they say it takes you 40 years or 40 lives if you're into reincarnation, ego is happy. Because he knows for 40 years or 40 lives, nothing will happen. <laughs> well, I don't think that's the so idea necessarily. It's, it's not that nothing will happen. It's that there's a sense that there will be a, uh, you know, a, a progression, that there will be continuing development. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean. Nothing will happen. It will remain within time space. It will remain within. So that's great. That's the dream theater. Waking up is about getting out of it. So let's take an example from Ramana's life. Um, you know, when he was a young lad, teenager, I guess, he had this profound awakening. And he went down to Tiruvannamalai and ended up going up to a, well, first he sat in a pit in the basement of a temple and practically died down there. But mm -hmm. finally somebody dragged him out and he, he ended up going up to a cave on the mountain and um, you know spending I don't know a decade at least sitting in some form of meditation deep samadhi or something uh, and, and presumably it was necessary for him to do that or he wouldn't have done it and then eventually he came out and began you know interacting with people that I don't think you would say that that was an example of that he was just numbing himself or pacifying himself. Uh, no, no, but but you assume that he was meditating. Well, he was doing something with his eyes closed in a cave. For, uh, yeah, for he a was day. sitting. Sitting. He was yeah. just being. Just being. Being. He was just being. I don't think he was doing anything. He just sat down. Okay. The belief is so strong that, that we have to interpret it. He didn't talk for years and somebody said to him, if I read correctly, were you taking the vow of silence? No, there was nothing to say. That seems just to me. He wasn't trying anything. He just was. And we make of it, because we believe in all kinds of spiritual stuff, that he was doing something in order to get something. 
I don't think he was. Yeah, I don't think he was either. I mean, not that I, you know, knew the guy, but you know, I, I would presume that. Me neither. <laughs> I, I'm sure he didn't have some kind of thing. Or right, I better sit here in, the, in this cave for a decade, and then I'll be ready to do something. I think he was just drawn within spontaneously and just following his natural impulse. I mean, and uh, you know, nature yeah. was was doing it. He wasn't he wasn't yeah. monkeying around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No purpose. Yeah. He just sat there. And he wouldn't have minded if he would have died there. Mm -hmm. Somebody dragged him out and started to feed him. He didn't ask for food. Right. People just took it upon themselves to take care of him. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And and then they locked him up in the ashram and he tried to get away a few times. But mm. well, tough luck. <laughs> yeah. I actually like your definition of meditation. To be honest, I've been meditating for almost 50 years. But the nature of it is kind of like you describe. It's not an effort to do anything or get any place or anything else. It's just sort of, there's a technique, there's a practice that I, but it's, it's really a matter of just being natural, sitting in presence. And, okay, but it's strange to use a technique for that. Well, you know, the, the silence mm -hmm. is already here. If you just... Uh, give your attention to this silence, you don't need any technique. It's already here and it will fill up your body within a second. Whilst when I'm doing a technique, I'm, I'm making it of time. Maybe. It's bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, the Buddha, I don't know what you want to call it, but the Buddha meditated, quote unquote, all of his life after he had his, his enlightenment. I'm sure he was, the silence was already there for him all the time, but for some reason he chose to, you know, spend some time, eyes closed or whatever, in, in meditation, just like we, we spend time, eyes closed in sleep. It, it, has, it has some effect to just allow one's full attention to be in that as opposed to, you know, yeah, the silence is already here, but I'm busy, active, doing things. It, it just, you know, it has its own value. Well, keep doing it then. <laughs> I will. Don't worry. <laughs> Some people have used the same argument with me. I won't worry. <laughs> Unless I don't, you know, that could happen. <laughs> but as long as it seems fruitful. Okay, I think we've done about that that point pretty well. And feel free at any time I'm going on or or not going on, and you have some thought in mind that I'm not asking, just come out with it. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one I take possible exception with. Um, you say, burnout is never about work, it's a spiritual crisis. Not feeling and listening leads to inauthenticity, which at a certain point makes the soul scream for change. Yeah, but I mean, tell that to an elementary school teacher in, in the inner city who's dealing with a, you know, a very unruly classroom of kids that are just, you know, who come from you know, very stressed, um, broken homes and so on. And, who there's a there's a term teacher burnout is that a spiritual crisis those people are going through or can there really be circumstances like syria the war is going on there for so many years people are living in these horrible bombed out cities and they all suffer from ptsd and all kinds of psychological problems just because of the sheer stress of it um are they not feeling or, or listening are they are they inauthentic, or are there really legitimate situations in which one can get burned out by circumstances? 
Uh, it could be, but I would only know if I would talk to, to the individual. Mm -hmm. I don't say anything about it, but when the teacher, when we started uh, about the burnout thing, would come to me, I know for sure that within 10 minutes, I could point out a few things, or he would become aware of it, of a few things before, uh, for instance, in his relationship, uh -huh. that would become clear that he's in a relationship he doesn't want to be in, but he just keeps going along with it. Or he had a signal, uh, stop this work, or stop working for so many hours, or whatever, and because of fear, he just moved on. I'm sure of this, because I've had people here from diff different walks of life who seemed burnout. Mm. And there was always something going on, signals that they had not because of fear or money or whatever. But I cannot answer things in, in, in big generalizations about people in Aleppo. I never go there, so I don't know what is happening. It's difficult to say. That's a really good point, actually. I think that there there are some generalizations one can make about Aleppo or uh, you know that town in in Baghdad that just got liberated from ISIS. I forget the name, but it starts with an M. Or mm -hmm. it had been bombed for years. And there is a mm -hmm. high incidence of of burnout and stress and PTSD in those places. But the point you're making, there might Obviously. be there might be teachers who thrive in an inner city classroom because it's like their dharma you know it's what they should be doing they're good at it they love it yes. mm -hmm. whereas others yeah. are just doing it for the salary and they maybe really should be doing something else yes exactly they're a lot getting, of people they're gonna get are, burned out because they're not where they yeah. ought to be a lot of people are not where, where they ought to be right. or doing things that they don't want to do yeah well uh, are in relationships they don't want to be in have trouble in their families that they really want to get rid of but they are scared to say something or you know, when we believe to be a, a separate entity, a shitload of trouble is coming for free with it. <laughs> yeah. It's always, it's always the case. Hmm. This, this uh, basic misunderstanding is the cause of a lot of trouble, including war. Yeah. Explain how that is the case. I, I think I know what you mean, but how would you well, say it's due, it causes war? On, on a simple level, if, if, I don't believe in, sep in separateness and I really feel that you and I are not two. The thought wouldn't come up to hurt you or steal something from you. Mm. It would be insane because I would be stealing from myself. Yeah, I was going to bring that point up earlier when bizarre. you were talking about compassion, you know, we were talking about cutting your finger. I mean, Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the, the key to that, obviously, is seeing your neighbor as yourself, and, and then you're gonna you're gonna love them. You, right. would, you would no more attack yeah. them than you would you know attack yourself. Well, uh, so when this separateness drops away, it is impossible to hate. Mm -hmm. For instance, it is impossible to say another group of individuals are uh, inferior. It, it, it it's it wouldn't come up yeah you know so but from the separate standpoint th these people are bad and we are good and uh, my god is better than your god it's all imagined but we don't want to look at that you know i believe in santa claus you don't it's 
tragic and funny at the same time. Yeah, I like that point. This whole thing about my way is the best and everybody else is going to hell, there's a certain sort of insecurity beneath that, I think. Sure. You, there's this ego aggrandizement that, you know, of course. my thing has got to be the best, and they hang on to yes. that, and, and everything else threatens it, so there's an antagonism. Sure. Yeah. Okay, good point. I like this next point. Self-inquiry is for internal use only, not for beating others down or to be used as an excuse for lousy behavior. Good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of related with the previous points, you know, with, with the Advaita Bible or uh, the Holy Book or the Quran in our hands. We can, we can use the, these books for any purpose, any ego purpose. You can always find a quote to excuse yourself or to diminish somebody or to whatever. To, 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 make up excuses or motivations for your egocentric activity. Mm -hmm. So that's what people do. It's, it's not the book themselves, the, the books don't matter. But that's what we do. We will excuse ourselves and do horrible things and then rationalize it. Mm. So I think it's important when we're doing this inquiry and are discovering something in myself lovelessness or egocentrism i shouldn't immediately run to my wife or whatever and say you you are egotistical because it's working this way and you should look into that mm. this happens a lot my, my previous partner i tried to force her into self-inquiry because mm -hmm. it was working for me mm. but she was learning in a different way yeah it took me a little while to figure that out <laughs> and my way wasn't better it was just different and it suited me you know so there's this phrase the advaita police you've probably heard that where where people are kind of <laughs> no i didn't yeah it, it kind of came out of the whole papaji crowd where you know people were all laying trips on others for not being non-dual enough or not using the right terminology like you know you, you couldn't say please pass the salt without somebody saying who wants the salt Oh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! It's even worse than I thought. <laughs> I think maybe that doesn't happen so much anymore. But it was a lot of people made jokes about it. Jeff Jeff Foster even made this real funny visit, video of these cartoon characters having a walk, and one says, "Look at the beautiful tree," and and he and the other character says, "There is no tree. There is no beauty." You know, and yeah, yeah, it's kind of this whole thing. <laughs> Here's a question that came in. I don't, uh, you know, feel free if you have no experience with this, just say, I don't know, and we'll move on. But uh, a fellow named Jared from St. Paul, Minnesota in the U.S. asks, can you describe some experiences with Kundalini if you have had any? If so, do you have any tips to deal with the side effects? I could describe those experiences, but I'm not really interested in it. Mm -hmm. And I would really be very careful with all this kind of stuff. How so? Because of the dangers of it. Usually it's an ego who wants something and try to release all these energies and all kinds of accidents, energetic accidents can happen. Yeah. So I wouldn't go there. Yeah. If it already happened, mm -hmm. just try to feel what happens without involvement, without trying to fix anything. 
the energy system is pure intelligence. It knows what to do, when to do it, and in which session. And all this energetic stuff, and I'm trained in it for four years, so mm -hmm. trust me, all this working with it, it's ego manipulation of a system we don't understand. Mm. Leave it to its own device. Mm -hmm. Things will happen in the right succession at the right time. Relax. Don't meddle with that. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, particularly I would warn against doing something like intense pranayama or something to try to awaken your kundalini. Yes, you yes. Know, you might get in you trouble. You shouldn't do that. Right. You shouldn't do that. It would be better to investigate why do I want this? What What do I want from it? What, what am I trying to get rid of? Or what am I trying to get? Investigate in what, what you want to get or yeah. get rid of. That is far more productive than fucking with your energy system. Mm. You don't know what you're doing and, and the energy guys will try to help you. They don't know either. Mm. Unfortunately, there are some people who actually haven't done anything. They, they haven't been interested in spirituality, haven't done spiritual practices, and yet they have some kind of kundalini awakening. Yeah, sure. And they don't, even, they don't even know what it is when it first happens, but yes. it really messes up their lives. Um, do you have any sure. advice for them? The same. Try to feel what happens. Mm. Just be aware of it and allow it to restructure itself. Mm. Don't panic, but it, it all depends on, on how scared you are or how, how mature you are or whatever. And, and you know, what other things that happen, but don't try to forcefully fix it. Mm. There's, there's so much violence in these so-called spiritual techniques, trying to awaken something when it's not the time yet. Yeah. Trying to calm my system when it doesn't want to be calm. Mm. It sounds spiritual. Mm. It feels like violence to me. I would want to know why is, uh, for, for instance, you have the, the, the thing of grounding. I need to be grounded. Then people are doing all kinds of exercises to be grounded. Instead of investigating, why doesn't my system want to be here? How would you investigate so that? So I'm forcing, just a second, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to force a system who is afraid to really be here now, I'm trying to force it to be here, mm. and I call it spiritual. Mm. Oh my God. I would look in into it and, and try to ask myself honestly, or, or with somebody who has a clear mind, what is going on that I, I'm afraid to really be here? There's a cause. Mm -hmm. If the cause is removed, I will just be here and I don't need to ground. Hmm. You know, when my heater is leaking, I'm not filling it up with water every day. I will look where the leak is. Yeah. Otherwise, I will have to do grounding exercises. Why would I want to do that? Hmm. Pushing yeah. a ball under the water. <laughs> That's All a good, good analogy. Soon, I like that one. Yeah. As soon as I stop my effort, it will jump up again. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, as a general principle, uh, you're not a big fan of effort, you know, any any kind of force or unnaturalness. Um, yes. That's that can be. We've established that, and and I agree with you on that for what it's worth. 
and you're also an advocate of bringing awareness or attention to things rather than deflecting yes. it or avoiding it in any way. And that's worked for you. And it works for your students, yes. I guess. Yeah. Only when they're there. If you really see for yourself that running away, avoiding, deflecting is not working, then the maturity will come to stop it. Mm-hmm. Only when it's really seen, not because you want to, because if you only understand this and you want to stop it, you won't. But if you have really seen it, understood with a capital U, it will drop away. Because mm-hmm. at that moment, it's clear to you that it is insane to prolong a strategy that bears no fruit. Mm. But only when it's seen. To get a concrete example, um, can you think of an, an instance with one of your students, um, if you call them students, who had something of some sort, and you know they were avoiding or suppressing or doing something like that, and uh, and the problem was persisting, and you helped them kind of see it clearly for the first time, maybe, and you know resolve it. Can you think of a, an example of something like that, just to make the whole thing more clear to people? Well, a, v- a very clear example, uh, a little while back, somebody doing coke. Cocaine. Cocaine. I have no moral issue with that, but we talked about what was going on, mm-hmm. and she could see at a certain moment that there were certain times that she'd like to do that. So I suggested to her, okay, now stop, and just look at it, what is happening. So when you feel it, when you feel the urge coming, just just say to your ego, you'll get it in an hour, but now I'm going to look and feel what is actually happening. And she could face a certain unrest or restlessness coming up, and it had to do with some relational stuff, and she could look at it and didn't run away from it, felt it completely, and the urge to use code dropped away. That's a good one. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Because if you say, I shouldn't use it anymore, or it's good or bad to use whatever, chocolate, TV, uh, music, then you make a conflict of it. Mm. But you can also postpone it and just look at it, feel it, investigate into it, and maybe you have a surprise insight or something changes. She understood it, really. I'm not sure, but I think with Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, they don't come in there and just say, all right, I'm never going to do this again my whole life. It's more like you live each day at a time, each moment at a time, <clears throat> and uh, you, know, you don't worry about tomorrow. But today it's the time you have mm-hmm. to deal with. Yeah, 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 and that's basically true. Some people come because they have had uh, anxiety attacks or something for a long time. Mm-hmm. So they will start telling me, I am having this for 10 years. That's not true. You're not in a panic attack of 10 years. Something like that doesn't exist. Right. You you have to deal with a panic attack if it's there right now. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with it? Do you place it in time immediately and, and make a huge problem out of it? Or is it just the, the energy moving at this moment? Can you look at it without judgment? even without the label of fear, because when we say fear, it's already in the bad corner. So the other day, or a few days ago, 
who had fear, and we could look at it together without the mind commenting, and he started smiling, because what he was feeling was a very lively, powerful energy moving. He liked it, mm -hmm. but before it was labeled fear, so yeah, and it's, it, it's uh, making my life difficult and uh, whatever. But when looking at it, without all the stories, it was just a powerful, lively, it was life force. It's not a problem. Yeah, that's good. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Byron Katie, you know, just loving what is and, and not embellishing it with all kinds of stories and complications. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But we problem, uh, I don't know what the word is in, in English. Never mind. Okay. We make a problem out of everything. Yeah, yeah. People know what you mean by that. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a teacher in Australia named Sailor Bob Adams, and I, th I think he, oh, yeah. has, he has this phrase of, you know, what's wrong with right now unless you think about it. You know, it's. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, Okie dokie. So let's see. Oh, that's interesting. This is the next little point I was going to read here. It summarizes mm -hmm. what you've just been saying. Reality okay. is never a problem until we start to project our beliefs, fears, expectations, and judgments onto it. Voila. Yeah. That's the point. <laughs> okay. Here's another one. You are far too much interested in solutions, and in the meantime, it is your mind, what you believe, who is creating the trouble in the first place. Right. That's another thing that, that when one observes one, one's mind, um, <laughs> mind is a very fun word to me, to mind. I have something against something, that's, that's what it means. So this, I think that's funny, okay, whatever. But what is here is never the issue, you know, any situation is valuable less, there's no value until I start projecting a value into it. Hmm. This is good, this is bad, this is beneficial, this is, you know? So it's basically the past giving commentaries on what is present. And then we run away from the situation to the future where the solution may be. So we're always moving away from the issue at hand. So we don't look at the issue, investigate into what it is. No, we look for a solution. It's, and it's always over there. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why a lot of people don't learn, but become very good at moving away from what is in terms of solutions or distractions or comfort or whatever. And the core problem just remains mm. and keeps making problems. And the essence, of course, is I'm a separate being. I won't even comment on that. That's good. Um, I'll just <laughs> read your next point. You say, unresolved issues keep you from being truly present and real. Avoidance, this is all these points are related. Avoidance is one mm -hmm. of the most weakening um, attributes of identification with the mind. Can you ever get to the bottom of it? I mean, is there ever going to be a complete resolution of issues or is there a never-ending supply of them to look at and resolve? Um, that's a good question. How I'm experiencing it now, sometimes things arise, mm -hmm. but it's never perceived as a problem. Mm -hmm. 
So there, there is no interest in a solution. And some uh, tendencies of this Hans character remain and some others might change, but there is no self-improvement here. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, I think you are. I don't know. It's another one of those paradoxical catch-22 kind of things. <laughs> and maybe it has to, maybe it's important, like, which is the cart and which is the horse, you know? There was a Zen story about this student who was kind of sitting and meditating and meditating and meditating and, and the teacher came and picked up a tile or something, it was his floor tile, <laughs> and he started polishing it, polishing it and polishing <laughs> it. And, you know, the student stopped and said, what are you doing that for? He said, well, I'm trying to make it into a mirror. And he said, you'll, you'll never make it into, a, it's a floor tile, it can't become a mirror. So th there's something yeah. about, you know, trying to endlessly improve or fix the relative situation, which is inherently, um, yes. yeah, it's relative. Yeah, it's infinite. Yeah. But then the, the relative is infinite, mm -hmm. you know, so. And it's not like awakening is not the product of cleaning up. So there, there are a lot of schools, obviously, purification and energetic cleansing and whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you're clean enough, you will awaken. It's not like that. Which does not mean that in some stages of somebody's life, some cleaning up could be useful. Of course it could. Right. But it's not when I'm 80% clean, the thing will click <laughs> and I will know that I have never existed. It's not like that. Yeah, here's uh, what you said about that in one of your articles. You, you mentioned two requirements. Um, the recognition of true nature for the recognition of true nature, a suitable energy system to let the recognition sink through um, mm -hmm. is valuable. So in, in that sense, you know, we're saying that there is some value to, you know, Jesus said, don't pour, pour new wine into old wineskins. You know, uh, there is some value in having a, an energy system, a, a nervous system that is mm -hmm. suitable for, yes. for the realization. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're doing cocaine every day or something, probably you're hampering your your chances or your ability to have that realization. Um, and you say, for most people, it's best to, bo to walk both paths, ripening the energy mm -hmm. system, you know, which is becoming conscious and cleaning up, and exposing yourself to direct teaching or experience. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a both thing. Yeah, at least for a while. Uh, for a while. Yeah, the danger, of course, of the, the cleansing thing and the maturing thing mm -hmm. is that we will get attached to that. And make it an endless project. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, well, that's fun. And if that's, that needs to happen, all right. You know, <laughs> I won't complain. Yeah. But that's the danger of that. The danger of only using the other side is that people have a tendency to avoid real issues because it's not advising. Right. And that doesn't have to do anything with it. I'm beating my wife and that doesn't have to do anything with it. Well, mm, yeah, there's no trying to do there's, that there's when no I'm wife and, and you know, it's just, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Exactly. Which is a, a, a bunch of bollocks because right. it is used as an excuse. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we use a quote, which is in itself true, 
but we use it as an excuse, it becomes untrue. Yeah. Because it's never the words, obviously. I'm not saying to myself that there is no separateness. You know, it's, it's not a belief system or a conviction or a phrase or something. I'm seeing that and I started talking about it and to my surprise, people were interested and it turned out to be a job. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, you're not, you're not just for you, both in your own experience and f as a teacher, it's not an intellectual concept or something and you can't, no. you know, you can't live it on the basis of merely a concept any more than you can nourish yourself by thinking about food. You know, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a, an experiential thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, just as much as somebody now may believe, of course, I'm a separate individual, mm -hmm. which is in most people, it's deep. This conviction, it, there's no way around it. Well, when it flips, the other thing is just as solid. There's no way to doubt it. It's it's crystal clear and amazing that the others don't see. Mm -hmm. But you cannot fake it. I, I cannot put together separateness anymore. Will never happen. I I will always see the cracks and, and start laughing. And you make a point here that there are two sides to ripening before awakening and after. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we've talked quite a bit about before in terms of, you know, the process you went through of looking at stuff rather than avoiding it and, and so on. And then what, what would be the nature of it after awakening? We talked about, uh, or the name came up, Nishigadatta, mm -hmm. and, and one of his uh, statements in, in a certain situation, uh, somebody awakened in his presence and he said something like, hmm, yeah, it's a mango, but it still needs to ripen. You cannot eat it yet. Uh -huh. So what you see and what I've also have seen happening the past 20 years, people having a, a, are waking up, but it's all shaky and still flimsy and unstable. And they, they will jump to conclusions and some old tendencies will have to dry out or I don't know how you say that, have to pan out. So I usually say, especially when they have an inclination to start talking to their friends or whatever, don't shut up for a year or two or three or whatever. Just let it sink in and, and don't burn all the energy immediately by talking about it and everything because, well, that's what unripe mangoes tend to do. And I can see now in myself, if I'm on my own uh, dream life, in the beginning, you know, the energy was moving all kinds of ways and it's much more stable or complete than, yeah, than 10 years ago mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And do you feel like it's an ongoing process? Like five years from now, you'll say it was, it's more stable and complete than it was five years ago? Uh, it's possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, has that been your experience over the past? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I must say that the, the differences get harder to measure. Yes. In the beginning, you get the, the big chunks. Mm -hmm. And now there's, there's more, if there's 
something happening it, it seems more like a sort of fine-tuning or yeah more subtle and it's all it's all full automatic i'm not doing anything i'm doing nothing spiritual i'm, I'm totally unspiritual <laughs> yeah by your definition <laughs> i think yeah in, in the sense that i'm not using any spiritual product products uh, barely reading any books uh, yeah thrillers i'm not meditating and not doing shiatsu or whatever i'm not doing anything yeah, it's just an automatic process. In fact, you say in one of your articles, the ripening after awakening is somewhat different. It's a mostly spontaneous, continuous dismantling of all kinds of leftovers. But there is little or no resistance to this yes. anymore because the ego has lost its dominance. Yes. Yeah. Very well put. <laughs> yeah, who wrote that? <laughs> yeah. Like, the, I don't know if you ever heard, there was this woman in, in the United States and quite a while back that, who called herself Peace Pilgrim. You ever hear of her? And she just yeah, walked around. Uh -huh. Yeah, she's this older woman. She just walked around the, the country, the entire country, with just a simple clothing and a pair of tennis shoes and, you know, no money, no nothing, and completely relied upon the providence of nature and strangers and everything yeah. to, sur to survive. Right. And, and um, in her little book, which is remarkable, she has this sort of chart of how she feels spiritual progress continue, you know, progresses. And there's, there's kind of like, it's a, sort of a slow rise before awakening when the ego is involved and actually interfering with it. <laughs> but after awakening, it sort of rises much more dramatically when you get out of the way and let nature run the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? Um. For a while, it will do that, yeah, and and then it starts to level again. Mm -hmm. I would say, Not, nothing. The, the the past years, nothing much is happening. Yeah. Now, I wonder. This is a little bit of a hypothetical and provocative question, but I wonder if if it's leveled for you because, in the context of what you are doing and in the context of your life, there's really um, no cause or impetus for it to rise much more but that theoretically there are you know many degrees to which it could rise um if that were your destiny if that were your tendency if that were your if you had the inclination or the desire for it there's a lot more possibility but in in the context of your life uh you've just sort of plateaued plateaued off and are just living it just yeah, and, yeah, but from my perspective, a complete is complete. I, I cannot take anything off or add to it. So, mm -hmm. and if have to change in in my dream life, okay. Yeah. If life says that way or drop this or whatever, okay. Mm -hmm. You know. So in that sense, things on on the surface of my life have changed. My mother got demented. It's, somebody died, you know, mm -hmm. stuff. But it doesn't distract anything from this completeness or add to it. So that's more what I mean. Yeah, no, that's very well put. It's like in mathematics, you know, if you have infinity, you can add something to it or subtract something to it, but it's still infinity, you know. It doesn't change well, the essential uh, nature. Yeah, that, yes. Yes, and that's always present and always here and always effortless, so. 
these are just little things as I was reading all of your essays that I thought, well, that's interesting. I'd like, mm -hmm. like to talk about that. So I copied and pasted it into a file. Okay. So here's another one that jumped out at me. You, you said, fulfillment is the result of not doing the simple and direct experience of, for lack of better words, an energetic conscious space that is already there, the direct relaxation in being now. So uh, fulfillment. Do you consider yourself fulfilled? Do you feel fulfilled? Yeah, the fulfillment is here. Yeah. And I'm not sad of it, so always, yeah. Does that mean that, that Hans character is always happy or never grumpy? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. But that, that happens in this fulfillment or completeness or infinity, like you just said. So there's no resistance on being grumpy and then there's no resistance in being happy. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer happiness to grumpiness? No. It's whatever happens. Yeah. yeah. And I must say, when, when grumpiness would totally go, I, I might miss it. Because <laughs> I like the energy. How does your partner like you best? Grumpy or happy? It depends on whether she's grumpy or happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if you get sick? What if you get like pneumonia or bronchitis or something like that? Do you feel in some sense less fulfilled, less? No. No? I have a hernia. Mm -hmm. Well, that hurts. Yeah. But it doesn't affect my mood and it certainly doesn't affect completeness because completeness has no backbone, so it cannot have a hernia. Mm -hmm. It's only the body. You know, and, and as you know, I think when a body gets older, it has these little things. Sure, things happen. Yeah, well, I don't care, basically. <laughs> Here's another one. And uh, people listening, remember that you can send in questions if you want. There's a, a question form under upcoming interviews on batgap.com down at the bottom of that page. Here's another little statement that jumped out at me. There's a big difference between love and need. I think this is actually kind of a big one, which we could talk about for a few minutes. Uh, what do you have to say to elaborate on that? When you listen to a lot of the uh, pop songs, mm -hmm. and, you know, I love you and I can't live without you, and right. you, you, you make me feel complete, that's not love. That's need in the sense of you need something to feel secure or complete or uh, something giving you attention or making you feel good about yourself. That's need. And when it's about, oh, let's do this, baby, baby, that's called being horny. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with being horny, but let's not call it making love. It's got nothing to do with it. You cannot make love. Love is what you are. Love is, for me, another word of, consci uh, of consciousness or beingness. And it doesn't do exclusivity. Or if you love me, you should, you know, which is emotional blackmail. Yeah. So love doesn't ask questions, doesn't set limits, uh, doesn't tell you what to do or what not to do or how to behave. That's not love. That's the ego trying to force uh, you or somebody else or himself. So I call that need. 
And it's a, it's a big one, mistaking love for need. A would, need for love. Would one way to explain it be to say that love is, is characterized by a tendency to give without expectation of return, whereas need is primarily oh, focused okay. on getting? Yeah, the, the, that's true. But ego is always giving or taking. Mm-hmm. But love, there is there is no separateness. There's, there's nothing to give or take. Because mm. it's a fullness. You know, the, the ocean again, it doesn't give its water to the to the wave. It is the wave. Yeah. It's undivided. And if if a river flows into it, it doesn't become more ocean-like. It's still the ocean. Yes, and it's not getting, and it didn't uh, make any effort to get the river. Yeah, I'm gonna get you to me. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't live like without that. this river. <laughs> <laughs> right, that would be insane. Yeah. So so love sweeps away the me. You know, and, and that's it. that is what truth does and freedom does. It's the absence of me. Mm-hmm. Well, just to take a personal example, and again, it's hypothetical, but, you know, you have a partner. She seems like a very nice person. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> presumably, you love her. And what what would you how would you feel if she decided to leave and fell in love with somebody else? Would there be any sort of lack or attachment or anything like that, or would you would the fullness really not be impacted by that? I, it would be weird to say anything about it until it's there. Until it happens. So yeah. I, I I don't know anything like that in the past since your awakening. Yeah, and that surprised me. In what way? Uh, that's something like that uh, agitated me for a week or so. Yeah. You thought you but were beyond tendency, agitation? Uh, no, no. I don't think I had that conclusion, but just I felt this turmoil in my heart mm-hmm. and was looking at it. Oh, okay. The thought was there, but I never made that conclusion it will not touch me anymore or something like that. But there was turmoil and the immediate tendency was to look at it. So after a few days or a week maybe and not not constantly a week but it came up and went and and then it was done. Yeah, I suspect you must have processed it a lot faster than many people would because you already have that that tendency, you know, to look at things and really just not avoid them, just go into them and yes, full, yes. resolve them, yeah. Hmm. I would even say, especially in, in an earlier period of uh, inquiry, I tried to make it, make it as hard as possible for me. So if I was afraid of something, I would just blow up the story and see what would come. So you're in love with somebody or you have a wife and you imagine her doing the whole hockey team <laughs> and see what happens instead of, I don't hope she will fall in love with somebody. Yeah. Just just when something happens, just picture it as bad as possible if you can handle it mm-hmm. and just feel through it. Just look at it, feel it. Yeah, that's an then, interesting technique. Then you're done pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. If you can take it, so 
you know, there has to be awareness and space to to be able to do that. Yeah, know? a certain so strength or capacity. It's not, it's not for everyone. Right. Mm. But it's, it's interesting. I, I'll think about that one. I may use it myself. Exaggerate it and, and see yes. it. Yeah. And if you, if you picture that stuff, anything, a few times, at its worst, and you can really stay with it and just look at it and feel it, all the, the, the tension will drop away after mm. a few times, mm -hmm. you know, the fear is gone. Good one. That's why I'm, I'm more an advocate of self-confrontation than all this feel-good stuff. I feel good when it's true and when it's free. That is good. Not to make me feel good. I, I can have a couple of beers and it makes me feel good <laughs> for an hour and then it doesn't. It's not bringing anything. Here's a paragraph that's a little longer. I'm going to read it and uh, you can talk about it. It says, um, you say, the danger in saying, quote, there is no person, end quote, and quote, everything is consciousness, end quote, is that we leave everything the way it is and unwittingly stay in our comfort zone and continue to take part in an old system that's essentially anti-living and has devastating effects on human relations as well as on nature. Mm -hmm. Focusing solely on the outer world is tricky as well. Let's find the middle ground and, and rediscover acting justly based on consciousness and experiencing all from great peace keeping an eye on what's needed in our environment, acting out of love, ever generous, and realizing we are not separated from Mother Earth, our social environment, the world. So the reason I copied that one is that it's, it's, an, it's a point about really the, um, the implications, I think, of, of spiritual, spirituality or awakening for the world and worldly pro problems, such as the environment and all kinds of other problems in the world, social problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people polarize that one and, and, you know, think that, you know, the two really have no relationship to one another and you know, that spiritual people think, you know, they just want to focus on that. People, activists think that spirituality is some kind of escape sitting there with your eyes closed. But I think you're saying that you're advocating a more comprehensive, inclusive thing where, well, you elaborate on it. I've said enough. <laughs> well, uh, to make it simple, we have two eyes. Mm -hmm. And I would say a true adult human being would use one eye for the world and one eye for infinity. Mm. And maybe we need to wake up twice to our true nature and to how systems are working in the world. And if I know that I am also my surroundings, so if that's not separate, I will not throw acid in the in the yard or in the, in the forest. Right. Because it's my own backyard, wherever it is. You know, it's insane. Not morally bad. It's just weird. So if there's a real change in this dropping away of feeling of separateness, I expect, but maybe I'm wrong, that it will also adjust how we live or how we deal with the environment, uh, with nature, with other people, 
like I said in the beginning, when I, I really know, not when I think, but when I really know I am you, I will not attack you or steal your car. Or It's weird. You know, so it should have an effect. Not that that is the, the, the goal, but it's, it's a byproduct. Yeah, and an important one. You know, I think you're right. I mean, I ride around town on my bicycle a lot. It's a small town, and I, I, I like getting the exercise. And, you know, I see all things people have thrown on the street, cigarette packs and yeah, bottles yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And I, I, I usually can't help but stop and pick them up and put them in my <laughs> baskets and bring them home and, and recycle them just because yes. mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't like, it's like that doesn't belong in, it's, it's, yes. if, if the environment is me, that doesn't belong in me. Yes. And the people who put it there are have an insensitivity to the environment. They're not seeing it in a, in a unified yes. way. Exactly. So we walk the dog. We we live in a forest or on the on the verge of a forest, and we walk the dog every day, and we pick up stuff too, and sometimes even purposely take it back with us because well, there's always bottles and cans or couches which won't <laughs> won't get into the back, but. Then we call somebody. Yeah, that's that's weird from my perspective. But I also understand that these people that do that, well, they can't be blamed for not feeling uh, one with the rest because mm-hmm. that's not their awareness. You know. So what I said earlier, there is no hate towards this. A little sadness, though. Yeah. I think you have a really good point, though. I mean, there are many people who fear for the continuation of the human race because there's so much damage being done to the environment and and so on. And, um, you know, if there is some kind of more widespread spiritual awakening taking place, which it seems to me there is, then maybe this is nature's way of, nature's antidote to what we've been doing, you know, and it's going to hopefully create a mass psychology that will be much more sensitive to mother earth and you know won't consider it merely a resource that is inexhaustible which it's not Mm -hmm. yeah well i don't believe that but you don't believe that'll happen uh no why not it's you're an example of it in your own life and you know what if you no 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 no. why Uh, you you talk to these kind of people Mm -hmm. You know, you don't talk to the hooligan who likes to smash somebody's jaw. True, I haven't... And there's, there's more of them. <laughs> there is, you know, but there's so many things that have changed in society over over the years that you didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, racial, yeah, racial segregation, <laughs> yeah, that. But, I mean, you know, huge tri- strides in racial segregation. Most of the U.S. cities in the South have black mayors now, whereas before, you know, they wouldn't even be allowed to use the same bathroom. You know, gay marriage and just all kinds of things that have just um, changed, and people never thought that would happen. So yeah, I'm, a, I'm optimistic. Okay, great. Good for you. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. I'm not pessimistic either. Maybe yeah, we should place it that. But basically... I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm just joking. I know. I wouldn't really, for that matter, mind so much if humanity got in extinct. Who cares? The dinosaurs are gone. It's not about humans. Maybe the planet is better off without us. I don't know. Could be. 
There will come a time when that happens. I mean, it might be a long ways off, might not. Yeah, yeah, it well, will, happen. will happen. Yeah, if we believe the universe and time to be true, I'm told that the sun has an expiration date, so... It does. In five billion years, it'll expand and the Earth will melt. So we'll have a real serious global warming yeah, problem. So couple of questions have come in. Um, here's one from okay. Pamela in Madrid. She's saying that you say in some uh, one of your writings, becoming aware isn't necessarily pleasant. It will always bring clarity, though. And she asks, yeah. she asks, what is clarity? Can you explain the difference? The difference between the difference what? between pleasantness, I think, and clarity. Well, clarity is clear and pleasantness is pleasant. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, it might, so, awakening might bring clarity to some unpleasantness. Yes, for yeah. instance, like we talked about already, uh, when you're face to face with your own aggression, for instance, or having to be right, it, it, that can become clear to you mm -hmm. that you're doing that and why you're doing that and, and all that it entails, that is unpleasant. But in, in this clarity, when you can stay with it, it may drop away and then this clarity may become pleasant. Yeah. But confront, confrontation, well, sometimes I make this uh, strange uh, equation. You lived in a half dark room all the time and all of a sudden the light goes on. Then you will see the mess very clearly. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of clarity, but it's also mess. Yeah. Because you put a lot of stuff under the carpets and in the corners and you wouldn't be seeing that because the, the room was half dark. Now the lights are full on, okay. Then you see how you live, where you live, what you're doing, what you're attached to, what you're trying to get. It might be a shocker. Yeah, but you couldn't clean up the room until you had the light on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's going to be a nicer room to live in once you've cleaned it up. Yes, yes. Or, or maybe the lights go on and you get that you've got to get out. That's also a possibility. Don't make it into a nice room, but just go. What would that relate to in terms of the metaphor? Leaving the room? No, I don't know. It just came up. <laughs> Sounds more uh, like an well, avoidance thing. To, no, no, not trying to rebuild something. It's another thing. Uh, it's not like you are somebody and then you're a awakened somebody who's going for different goals. Mm. You know, the, the, the becoming falls away. Mm -hmm. There's only presence. The, the whole thing of becoming, so getting a better room in this metaphor, is still a becoming, a working on something. But when awakening is complete, there is no working on whatever in a psychological or spiritual sense. Right. You might be working in your garden or on your car or with your synthesizer, but there's no becoming, there's no goal. Hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Things are kind of running on automatic more. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and the, Ramana Maharshi, we talked about him earlier, he had one quote that I love very much. Your job is to be, not to be this or that. Mm -hmm. That sums it up quite nicely. Yeah. So music may occur, 
but it's not the goal to produce a song or be a musician or whatever. The music came back uh, seven, eight years ago and CDs or songs started to emerge and they patched themselves together in some homemade CDs. The things were written and they got a cover and were called a book. But I never sat down to write a book. You didn't feel like the doer? No. Yeah. When I'm truthful, I never feel I'm doing anything. And these instances that I do, something is off. Because mm. work, in my dictionary, means effort, means forcing. And I don't like it. No. Do you ever have situations that are that you have a difficult decision to make, or it's kind of it has moral implications or something, and you're weighing this versus that, and you don't know what to do? Do you ever do that kind of thing, or, or the way you function, it just doesn't work that way anymore? No. Well, when such a thing arises, uh, there's an automatic stepping out of it, because mm -hmm. when I um, when I want to have clear what to do, I must not be part of the equation. I don't know if this makes sense. I think it does. But so then, <coughs> what happens? You just wait and see how it's going to work out, and then eventually the right thing kind of no, presents uh, itself, uh, or what? Yeah, I, I know that I will know what to do when, when it's, it's right necessary. Time. Yeah. Yes, and when I don't know, it's probably not the moment to know, so I don't worry about it. Okay, good. But if you get involved, then your fears and desires and whatnot get mixed into the situation, and then clarity is out of the question. Hmm. So what works best, and it's not something that I do, but it just happens, there's a sort of zooming out. Yeah. And all interests drop away mm -hmm. and then there's just this energetic constellation this situation and the the right thing or one of the right things will occur and because everything is already complete it basically doesn't matter if it goes that way or that way mm -hmm. i'm not losing anything or gaining anything yeah so it basically doesn't matter but not in an indifferent manner, but because there are more uh, right actions possible on any subject. Yeah. Where so. the ego always thinks this is right and that is wrong. No, there are more. When you see it in musical terms, you could do a bass line on a synthesizer or a bass guitar, or Eric, my friend, could do it on his trumpet or just hum it. It's all baseline possibilities. Yeah. But sometimes this sounds nice and the other time that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. But there's a song coming up in itself is nice, but it's not important. If it not gets recorded, the stars won't drop from the sky. <laughs> we always exaggerate our uh, importance mm. and what we do, we make it so it's not. We're used because consciousness like to entertain itself. Mm. So a guy over there, a guy over here, and they're talking about this importance of. Well, <laughs>
I like that. There's a saying I heard once, which is that um, humility is the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. Yes, yeah. yes. For good, yes. Yeah. And it's also very nice when you like something to happen in a certain way, and then it turns out different, and it's much more beautiful than you could have imagined. Very good point, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you had a limited expectation. Yeah, of, and, yeah. Always, always. Yeah, good point. Okay, here's another question that came in. Uh, this one is from Amanda from Tampa, Florida. She asks, can you describe how creativity and the creative process are linked with consciousness? You're a creative guy, you're a musician, so it's a good one for you. How would you describe that? Well... Have you become more creative, do you think, as a result of yeah, awakening? Less egoic. So when I made music when I was in my teens or early 20s, I was much more scared to let somebody hear something that I made <laughs> or uh, wanted rewards for it mm -hmm. because it was cool. That's not there anymore. So it has become more free. Mm. Yeah. But again, I'm not 20 anymore. Yeah. And I don't want anything of it. I don't have to perform. I wouldn't even want to. I'm not looking for a YouTube hit or whatever. You know, it's just something I sometimes like to do. And so creativity is more often than not ego-based and that's a shame but I understand it but it's mostly somebody who wants to make something or and then show off uh, my girlfriend calls a lot of music uh, me too music mm -hmm. if you catch the drift yeah yeah I want to be famous too right. you know that, that's not the love for music but it's the love for fame mm -hmm. for instance you know, so there are different levels. So the freer it is, the more creative it is, I think. Whether it's nicer, that's something else entirely. Hmm. It's a matter of taste, maybe, or whatever. But if, if there's nothing in the way, it can flow really freely. Hmm. The danger is, the other side of it is, there is no necessity. When I thought I was somebody, I had to make music. Now I don't. Yeah. Because the, the, the energy that comes when, when I hear a melody or a lyric or whatever, there has to be a lot of energy in it to make me go to the recorder or to the little studio to do it. Because there's no egoic need to make something. So... <laughs> That's been bad for music uh, the last year because I didn't do anything. I did buy it. I did buy a nice synthesizer, yeah. but I didn't record anything because I don't feel it now. Yeah. I don't know if it's an answer to the question at all. I think it's a good answer, and Susan can, okay. Amanda can follow up if she wants to. And it mm -hmm. occurred to me as you were speaking that maybe Me Too music would appeal to Me Too people, and uh, you know kind of music that's made f without ego would appeal to people who more are without ego. Maybe, maybe it's sort of an affinity thing, you know, 
like 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 maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Like attracts like. Maybe. Hmm. I, I really don't know. Yeah. And when I look at, at what has, has been recorded uh, the past seven years, there are, there is some um, instrumental electronic stuff that you could call meditative, mm -hmm. but there's also hard rock or folk music or experimental jazzy weird shit. Yeah. So I don't know if it has anything to do. That's just what I want to say with this awakening thing. Sure. I think I know how you're going to answer this next question, but let's see. Susan from New York asks, would you be able to describe your thoughts about what happens to individual consciousness after death? Does the individual continue? No. There is no individual already. So, so I, that's not how I thought you were going to answer it. I thought you were going to say, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. So then by that token, you would probably <clears throat> think that reincarnation is not the way things work. Because well, there's course, something there is from no life separate to life. entity. Yes. Okay. So whether we call it an ego or mind or mm -hmm. soul or whatever, it's always talk about a separate entity. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing. That's the illusion. Yeah. Already right now, there is no separate being. So there is no separate being going jumping from life to life or going to Valhalla or Krishna Loka or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing. What will happen, death is nothing else than the dropping away of the me illusion. That's all. And so either the me illusion can drop while you're still alive or it can drop when you yes. die, but either way it's going to drop. Yes. Yes. And, and it drops every night as well. Yeah, when you sleep. In the dreamless sleep state, everybody's perfectly happy. Why? Because everything you love and hate, which you need an eye for, mm -hmm. yeah? you need an eye to love and hate, well, it all drops away. That's why everybody is really happy when they're asleep. And still some people claim to be afraid of death. Mm. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you make of the evidence for reincarnation? And there is some substantial evidence in which, you know, some kid like starts describing in great detail about the fighter plane he flew on in World War II and then knows the names of his crew and all kinds of stuff. And then his parents do some research and they found that there really was such a guy and he, you know, and he did this yeah, and that. I really, there's a lot of stories like that. Yes, there's a lot of stories about everything. And a, a nice way to look at it is, is like um, recycling. So there's one ocean of energy and somebody dies. Mm -hmm. So the energy contained in this somebody gets free. And let's say the green strand of this energy comes somewhere and a new organism is created and a big part, a big chunk of this green energy comes into this new guy. Mm -hmm. And then he remembers and because he believes like everybody else that there's a separate entity he's going to say, I was the fighter pilot. Mm. Like there are 10,000 people who say I was Napoleon. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And they usually, there's another thing that I noticed in this energy work that I did in the 90s, 
We did also reincarnation therapy. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody, including this one, was always a king, a queen, a high priest or something like that. I heard very little about farmers. Yeah, the guy and who cleaned the toilets. And there were a lot more farmers and toilet cleaners. <laughs> no, we all were magicians and very special people. Oh man, come on. <laughs> yeah. The woman who just asked that question, you, you might, if you haven't done so, you might want to watch my interview from last week with Sri M, who goes into great detail about all kinds of memories he has of specific past lives, and they weren't all kings and, and princes. It was, you know, oh, good. he was a prostitute, he was a this, you know, all, mm. all kinds of uh, experiences that he remembers. Yes. Um, well, that's, I don't know. I, it's like, it's not a question I want to argue with you, because I, my, who knows what's, I mean, I don't have a certainty of how it actually works. I have a, a, a sort of a, a belief, but the belief is not any, anything final. It's just like a theory. But there's certain, but mm -hmm. it's a very different worldview than you have. You know, I, I have this sort of progressive worldview where there's a sort of a progressive evolution over, you know, vast amounts of time to higher and higher levels of expression. And you just don't see it that way. And that's fine. And I, I don't know if either of us in, in the context of this interview could mm -hmm. convince the other. But uh, there's no point. To, no point. The it. only thing I, I, I could uh, hand to people who believe in whatever mm -hmm. reincarnation or afterlife or whatever. Mm -hmm. If, if you want to learn something about this, investigate in why do you need such a story? Yeah, there might Just be... Just try to look at it. No? Sure. There might be needy reasons or, or for needing really, such a story. Yeah, you and, know. and maybe there's no need, but it might be that you confront something in yourself who needs to believe whatever. Sure. Instead of the, just being. Right, there might be some motivation that's dependency or some or lack. comfort or fear or whatever. And it might be interesting if somebody would like to do that to see what is the basis of this story or theory that one claims to believe in. Another thing I'd like to say, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that believe or say to believe in reincarnation or afterlife or sitting with God or whatever. The funny thing about this is that most of these people don't live by it. If they would really, really, truly, totally been convinced that that was the case, they would live another life. It doesn't add up. They'd live differently so, than they're living, you mean? Yes, yeah. yes. So I can see that it's only on a verbal level that they sell that story to themselves mm. that they believe in this and that but it's not it didn't touch the ground mm -hmm. it's not complete how do you expect a person would believe uh, would behave or live if they you know truly believed in reincarnation and were honest and not hypocritical about it how more are these complete, people how more, are, in, how more are, in tune more in tune less egocentric if you really believe that you could go to hell or to heaven yeah how do you explain to be greedy uh, destroying the environment which your your lord made right 
you know, and it says that uh, the meek shall inherit, uh, <laughs> or you should be generous. You love love yourself like uh, love uh, thy neighbor like you love yourself. Well, <laughs> we've seen in history and even today a lot of uh, discrimination and warmongering from our Christian or Muslim brothers. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, so pe people aren't it's walking insane. their talk. It's insane. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I understand that they like their own sales pitch, but I'm not buying it. And if you you keep repeating that, well, maybe these people get something out of it, obviously, but it's very flimsy stuff. Well, I mean, let's say you go to CERN in, in Geneva and you say to the physicists working there, you know, why do you want to find the Higgs boson, you know, I mean, what's in it for you? What's the point of it? And they would mm -hmm. say, well, I just w we want to understand how the universe works. If we can find this thing, it will help us. It'll explain uh, a lot about the way the universe actually functions or was created. So, you know, let's say that we take reincarnation as a, a working hypothesis, a theory. And it might be of interest to some people, not others, to investigate that theory and if it can be investigated to find out is that true or not? Does that really happen or not? But if we just say, nope, doesn't happen, uh, then we're not really being very scientific. You know, we're just dismissing something without possibly, mm -hmm. you know, being open to all the explore and all the investigation that may already have happened. Uh, sure. But I cannot deny what I've seen or how I see things. So, yeah. And it doesn't mean that somebody else has to agree with me I, I i really don't care but i have to say if, if confronted with these kinds of questions how i see it yeah it just jibes with your experience and your understanding yes the way you see it so so if it's clear and i might say that again that there is already now no separate being there is nothing that can incar incarnate or reincarnate there's nothing here already the answer to that is if you perceive things as a oneness, but at the same time, you, you have your body, I have my body, your Kasia has, your, your partner has her body, and so on. There, there's, on a certain level, there's, there's apparent separateness. And so in terms of reincarnation, by the same token, it's understood that just as we have separate physical, biological bodies, there's, <coughs> that we have separate subtle bodies. And, yeah, yeah, and, those, and those separate subtle bodies can move on to another physical body when this physical body dies. That would be the mechanics of it. Now, ultimately, yeah. ultimately, with the capital U, okay, there's no nothing. You know, there's no individuality. Uh, but we're not talking about ultimately. We're talking about a relative phenomenon. Yes, I understand. But also on a relative term, I think it's a strange thing because it would suggest that there's some learning would occur. Yeah. Well, I don't see it. I'm reading a history book that has been issued last year, Silk Roads, so doesn't really matter, but you get a history of four or five thousand years, mm -hmm. which is not so long, but still, uh, you always see the basic things. Humans, power hungry, uh, greedy, very little empathy. Yeah, the same patterns keep repeating themselves. Yeah, that's still here, so. 
But that doesn't deny the possibility of an individual soul learning and kind of moving. No, no, no. But one of the side theories was that, uh, like I learned it in the 90s, we, we or they all believed in this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. that there was learning every life experience, you're learning more and getting closer to God or whatever. I would say it's not working. Well, you're saying it's not working for for the species, but for individual souls, perhaps there is some evolutionary, you know, direction that takes place and, and progress is made. Yeah, yeah. But then there's new ones coming well, along I... which haven't learned the same lessons. So that, that although, well, you know, well, why I mean, do they leave? The, the general uh, consensus, though, is that in many respects we have learned a lot in, as a society over the, over the thousands of years. I mean, it's not considered kosher to, to, burn people, to accuse people of being witches and burn them at the stake anymore. And uh, there's all kinds, of th all kinds of ways in which we have matured and improved as a society. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if you say so. Oh, it's true. It's true. They are, <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> Anyway, this is one of those. Have you have you heard that there are more slaves now than in any time? I have heard that in history. No, yeah, you're so right. You're right. You, you know, it's just it's, not institutionalized, it's always, but it's this underground system that's going on. Yes. Yeah. Voila. So we are just more sophisticated, and we now press a button, and 500 people die. And we used to go at the club, which looks a little messier, but at but, least it's face to face. It's honest. But you and I, Hans and Rick, aren't the guys pushing the button or clubbing people with a club? No, no, obviously maybe not. we no, were. We're maybe we were a hundred lifetimes ago, but we've maybe we've grown out of that tendency. Mm. <laughs> I'm just playing Sorry, with you. Just like it. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those questions like free will that you can kind of go on and on. And philosophers have been debating for eight, forever. Um, but anyway, it's fun no, to play with. So it's all it's all very simple. Just one, two. Will is never free. I want my ice cream. What's free about that? Hmm. Come on. This is really easy. I should teach this in fourth grade or something. Hmm. Free and will exclude each other. Is there will? Yes, of course. Look around. But it's not free. I, I have to be the CEO, otherwise there's nothing free about it. It's all needy and, and pretty childish. Well, yeah, it's a matter of degree. You know, I mean, some people are more gripped by impulses and obsessions and others are not so much, but... Yeah, but they didn't make that. They didn't make it. Sure. My last book is titled something like You Didn't Make You. You are happening, you know. You didn't grow your nose. You're you're not in control of, about your thoughts. You nor you nor I can make up, decide now what we will be thinking in thirty seconds. True. So I'm happening. I'm not in control. But like, let's say, you know, remember you were telling us earlier about how you kind of uh, adopted this process of looking at things rather than avoiding them. And in so doing, you worked out a lot of stuff that you hadn't worked out before. So th that seems like it was a conscious, intentional process. And um, something. No, no, that's what you make of it. Mm -hmm. 
I'm saying this happened. It just happened spontaneously. I didn't do it. Yeah. It did me. I didn't do it. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. This insight came to me. Right. I didn't decide to not run and hide anymore. It became clear that running and hiding was fruitless and perpetuating my misery. Because I, I could see that my ego was telling me if you deflect and avoid and whatever, you'll be safe. And mm -hmm. I saw it was a lie. Mm -hmm. I didn't become safe. I stayed afraid. It was a lie. And I didn't decide it was a lie. I saw it. Yeah. It happened. It's I not, didn't do not that. something you had a choice in, just something that happened to you. Yes. And everything is like that but yeah. we always project this ego fellow that makes decisions and has a free will and whatnot well i always say if you have a free will okay will yourself awaken now come on mm. choose to be awakened prove it nobody can do it so it, it's beside the point and irrelevant mm. in my understanding there's a we have a little wiggle room you know, I mean, there's there's a certain leeway within which we can sort of guide the boat this way or guide the boat that way, but we can't just make the boat fly or you know just suddenly turn turn an ocean liner a 90 degree angle. There's just there's certain restrictions, but we ha we operate within that 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 those, those boundaries, and there there's an intentionality that we can exercise one way or the other to shift the tendencies slowly like like again like turning an ocean liner mm. yeah, okay <laughs> here's another question that came in not that i'm avoiding your response to that because that's another one of those things we could go on all day mark peters from santa clara california asks can you describe the contrast in your relationship to your own thoughts before and after awakening The difference is that I used to take them very seriously mm. and consider them mine. Uh -huh. And now it's just, there's a lot of birds fly, flying, you know, we live in the forest, right. but I don't pluck out all the birds and say they're mine. My birds. <laughs> so, yeah, my birds, my thoughts. Yeah. Nothing is mine or everything is mine. So, and my opinion is not better or worse than the next guys or girls. So. Thoughts are, are quite irrelevant. Mm -hmm. That's good. And I imagine you would say the same of actions, you know, being a more concrete thing than thoughts, but it used to be my actions. Now it's just sort of a, a more yes, spontaneous yes, flow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So one of the things that you notice on that level is uh, it's very hard to be proud or feel guilty because mm. you need a me a claimer, uh, a one to be responsible for that. Right. And again, the, take, the take illusion ownership. of I, I could have chosen differently. No, you can. Right. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> well, yeah, but you did. Yeah. Because you are like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. But we always create this super ego that should be perfect. And some people imagine that awakening means that you uh, be a, a 2.0 version, a, a, a better me, a better self. But the truth is, the truth is no self. 
Yeah. There's no better hunts or something. This is a dream character. Mm. It's pretty irrelevant, basically. Well, that's probably a good note to end on. Uh, right. I was thinking of something Ramana Maharshi said about the Bodhisattva vow in Buddhism when somebody told him about that where someone takes the Bodhisattva vow, they're going to come back lifetime and after lifetime until all beings are yeah, enlightened. That's silly. And, and he said, he laughed and he said, he said, that's like saying, I'm not going to wake up from this dream until everybody else in the dream wakes up. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely crazy. <laughs> Oh, good. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Hans. I've really enjoyed Thank this. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You're an interesting guy. So let me make a few wrap-up points. Um, mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Hans Laurentius uh, in, in the Netherlands. You go to his website, and it's in Dutch, but there's an English section on there, too, um, which you can find, and there's a bunch of articles written in English that you can read. Um, and this interview is one of an ongoing series, so there'll be another one next week. If you'd like to be notified of future ones, you can either subscribe on YouTube or on batgap.com. There's an email subscription thing, or both, if you wish. There's an audio podcast to this. We've been having some technical problems in the last week, and the podcast hasn't been working properly, and people have been emailing me, but we're working on getting that fixed. And a lot of other things, but if you just go to batgap.com and explore the menus, you'll, you'll find what, what's there to be found.